Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, celebrating a century of surfing in Florida at the Cocoa Beach Surf Museum. It's a culture for many of us, and there's uh, many of us talk about the spirituality, the culture, the, the sport. There's so many ways to describe surfing. The strange tale of Barbecue Charlie from Vero Beach. He killed this other fellow, I think more by accident than anything. And remembering the prehistoric Whedon Island culture. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. With 663 miles of beaches facing both the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean, Florida, along with California and Hawaii, is one of the most popular destinations for surfers in the USA. By the early 1930s, a pair of lifeguards from Virginia Beach, John Smith and Bay Braithwaite, operated concession stands on Florida beaches and demonstrated the use of Hawaiian surfboards. Bill Whitman and Dudley Whitman, whose family produced Whitman chocolates, surfed at Miami Beach in the early 1930s, where they made surfboards out of sugar pine. Tony Sasso, executive director of the Cocoa Beach Surf Museum, says that the history of surfing in Florida may have started a couple of decades earlier. Surfers weren't the best historians, so, uh, you know, there, there are some uh, questions as to whether it actually started in the teens here or in the 30s, but in the 30s it was actually going pretty strong in, in a paddleboard sense of the way. There were lifeguards, there were paddleboards, uh, the Whitmans um, of the Whitman sampler of chocolate candy down in South Florida, uh, uh, really strong in, in the movement. Uh, they were very good friends with one of the more famous surfers, Tom Blake, who invented the, uh, the, the Blake paddleboard basically. and. Uh, they were friends uh, both up from up in Michigan and down in South Florida. He came here, and uh, there's a famous, I, I want to say 1937 photograph in Daytona Beach of uh, a couple of the Whitman brothers, uh, some others in there, some real famous folks with these big, giant, you know, 15, 12, 15-foot paddle boards and uh, uh, some pretty tough guys back then, uh, dragging those things around and, and paddling and surfing on them. And, and it's grown uh, from there in spurts and sputters. 
During World War II, hundreds of thousands of soldiers were trained in Florida, and in the decades following the war, many of them returned to the Sunshine State to live with their families. Active military bases in Pensacola and Cocoa Beach provided people ready to surf, leading to a surge in the sport's popularity in the mid-20th century. Well, what, what happened was a, a lot of servicemen were, had been, over, especially in the Pacific arena, had seen surfing. And, of course, they, they were coming back, and a lot of them actually surfed in Hawaii, and they started coming back. And even though many of them were you know, going back to work, and it didn't get as popular as fast as it did on the west coast of the United States, uh, because a lot of folks were coming back to industrial jobs and uh, you know, living up and down the coast where surfing in, you know, arguably isn't as good as the West Coast. They were, in fact, beginning that, that seed of surfing, which, again, sputtered and spurted along until the 60s when it really hit its mark in the late 50s, early 60s. And um, I think most of us know what happened then. It just became uh, supremely popular because of music and culture and uh and actually, we talk about it now as the surf culture having influenced uh, our language, our dress, our mores. In a lot of ways, we talk about extreme sports, and you know, surfers uh, were the original extreme sports advocates. Long before reaching Cocoa Beach, surfers driving in from almost any direction are greeted by a series of billboards advertising Ron John's, the world's largest surf shop. Ron Domena opened the surf shop in 1963, which has grown into a complex covering more than two acres in Cocoa Beach. Auxiliary shops have opened in Fort Lauderdale and Orlando. The Cocoa Beach Surf Museum is housed in the Ron Johns complex. Museum Executive Director Tony Sasso describes the importance of Ron Johns to the surfing community. It's an icon. It's a destination for a lot of people. I'll never forget I was a member of the uh, uh, Pacifica Pedro Point Surf Club in Pacifica, California. And w one of our members had a, I showed up one day and he had a big old Ron John sticker. And of course, I grew up in Florida and he had a big old Ron John sticker on the back of his, his uh, VW bus. And I, I questioned him about it. I said, oh, yeah, we just, we were, we're over there. We were in Ron John. We spent hours in there. It was a cool place. And many of us sort of take it for granted, but it's, it's, it's provided jobs for so many of us, and it's uh, you know just been around forever. And of course, Ron and Linda Mena both are wonderful uh, folks who have put so much into uh, preserving and keeping that culture and history alive. Florida surfers have been active in competition since the establishment of the Eastern Surfing Association in 1967. In 1992, a surfer from Cocoa Beach named Kelly Slater became the first world champion surfer from Florida and the youngest person to win the title. Since then, Kelly Slater has won the Association of Professional Surfers World Championship six times. Tony Sasso says that Cocoa Beach is very proud of Slater. Absolutely. Uh, we've got a Kelly uh, Slater display here, and he's our guy. Uh, he's our Cocoa Beach guy, and uh, we're very proud of him. I was a former city commissioner and was uh, just really proud and happy to be a part of having a street named. And I'll tell you a quick story. Kelly had contacted me just before because it was going to be Kelly Slater Way. And he asked that it be Slater Way to honor his entire family. And I thought that was really cool. And that's the kind of guy he is. He's one of those uh, sports stars that you can hold up uh, as an ideal because of his 
position for kids and showing, uh, you know, no drugs and drinking and all those kind of things. He's really a, a, a good ideal to hold up there, and he's a wonderfully talented and kind person as well. Tony Sasso has surfed most of his life. Growing up in the St. Petersburg Beach area, he traveled to Cocoa Beach every weekend to surf. His passion for surfing would later take him to beaches around the world, but his home is now in Cocoa Beach. Uh, <laughs> I'm one of those kind of guys, we have a, a, a saying that uh, the best surfer is the one having the most fun. I'm the one having the most fun. Uh, I'm an old longboarder. I just get out there and surf myself, and every once in a while on the perfect day, I just get up there and I'm a hood ornament, and, and I'm in heaven. And uh, just being in the water getting wet is one of those things that, it's a culture for many of us, and there's uh, many of us talk about uh, the spirituality, the culture, the the sport. There's so many ways to describe surfing, and it's individual and yet it's group. The Cocoa Beach Surf Museum grew out of other efforts to preserve the history of surfing in Florida, namely the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame and Museum started by Sean O'Hare. Sasso and O'Hare worked together to establish the Cocoa Beach Surf Museum. Well, it started 10 years ago. In fact, we're in our 10th anniversary. Sean O'Hare, uh, son of Pat O'Hare, one of our very famous and, and Hall of Fame uh, member uh, uh, surfers and, and, and board shapers and builders, uh, Sean, his son, started this uh, in 1999. A little storefront, and we kind of grew from there. We hooked up about... I guess it was six, seven, eight years ago now, and, and we've grown it to this, and we've just gotten a lot of the, the, the tribe here locally got involved, and we just have fun and, and love showing off you know, our collection of boards, and now we've got a surf art, kind of an, uh, the art of surf culture, so to speak, exhibit going on now. We've got 50 years of Ron John. Uh, we've got another one coming up. Very soon, it's it's uh, we're looking at uh, a surfing in uh, Vietnam exhibit, uh, kind of remembering a lot of folks that from years ago that that went through that. Uh, we're looking at uh, some other great Hall of Fame members that we're looking to do exhibits with. The Cocoa Beach Surf Museum displays surfer art, surfboards, photographs, trophies, posters, and other memorabilia celebrating surfing in Cocoa Beach, Florida, the nation, and the world. In addition to housing rotating physical exhibitions, the museum is in the process of establishing an electronic archive. What we're really excited about is we're in the very baby steps, but one of our ideas is because we're limited in size physically, you're, we're, we're learning we're not limited in size electronically. So we're looking at putting together a, uh, a researchable, searchable electronic database archive. We've brought on a, a, a gentleman who's a, his, he's a volunteer with us. He's a historian and an archivist. So we're beginning uh, in the room that we're sitting talking in now. We'll be putting together a, a, a search engine for uh, not only Cocoa Beach and Florida, but East Coast surf history that anybody writing a book or doing research or an article will be able to utilize publicly. And it'll be free, of course. And we're just excited about it. In fact, we've even met with Florida Today, our local newspaper, to uh, work together in that how we might work with them. So we're reaching out to folks who know more about it than I do. I'm, I'm, I'm an executive director. I'm the idea guy. But I know there's some folks out there who really know and understand history, uh, the electronic side, all those different things, and bring them together to make this happen and uh, function as 
uh, we want to be the premier surfing museum on the East Coast, and that's, that's one of the aspects of how we want to do it. If Tony Sasso's name sounds familiar, it's probably because of his political career rather than his affiliation with the Surf Museum. After serving as Cocoa Beach City Commissioner, Tony Sasso replaced Bob Allen in 2008 as Florida State Representative for District 32. His defeat at the end of the year by Steve Crisofoli has allowed Sasso more time to dedicate to preserving Florida history and culture. You know what, it's, it's important for legacy and all those things that we as historians know, and, and I don't think I need to convince people who are interested in history why it's important, but what we all need to do is, is get our elected politicians and leaders to understand, and I think maybe the thing that might tweak them as much as anything is the economy of it. It's, it, it's so functional uh, in, to revive a city or, or, or an economy as an economic generator. And that's something I think appeals to almost anybody. And I love it because I love history and I love culture and I love art. And those are really important things to me. And it fills a void in some people. You know, I mean, it really fills a soul. But on the other side of it is the economic benefits of it. And it, it, tourists come in town, they want to go do something. What are they going to do? You know, there's only so many restaurants and, and other things, you know, Disney's to go to. Let's go see some art. Let's go to a museum. Let's see some history. And a lot of people want to learn about where they're at. I know I do. When I go visit a town, I want to find out a little bit of the history. I find it very interesting. Um, so I, I think that's one way to do it. While serving in the Florida House of Representatives, Tony Sasso was instrumental in helping to pass the Clean Ocean Act. I had to ask him which is better passing important legislation or catching a really great wave? <laughs> well, if, if you're like me, uh, it, it's a combined effort because uh, I worked on the Clean Ocean Act, which kept the gambling shed from dumping pollution in the water. So now I get to actually catch that really cool wave in really clean water. So how's that? Tony Sasso is executive director of the Cocoa Beach Surf Museum, located in the Ron John Surf Shop Complex. The museum celebrates the history of surfing in Florida.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. In the mid-20th century, there was a man in Bureau Beach known as Barbecue Charlie. As Janie Gould reports, his nickname did not come from his cooking skills. Vero Beach made national headlines in 1950 when a grisly killing was discovered on an island in the Indian River. A fisherman named Charlie Chapman killed another fisherman, Charles Shrewsbury, but claimed it was self-defense. The two men had spent the day shrimping together. Then they built a fire in a 55-gallon oil drum. At some point, they started arguing. Something about one man's boat hitting the other man's and chipping the paint. Shrewsbury came after Chapman with a grubbing axe. Chapman then struck him with a piece of firewood, and that killed Shrewsbury. But as any longtime resident knows, there's much more to this story. Just ask Marvin Carter. I'll tell you the way I remember it. He and a friend of his were camping and living on, I think, on the west shore of the river at that point in time. And they drank a lot, and I got into a fight, and he killed this other fellow, I think more by accident than anything. Then he reportedly didn't know what to do, so he tried to burn the body up in this big 55-gallon drum. He kept the fire going all night, and at daybreak placed the bones and ashes in a box. The victim's identity was confirmed when police found a tooth with a gold crown. Later, when the magazine Front Page Detective featured the crime in its pages, the headline read, A Tooth for a Tooth. My mom always said that for weeks there was really a terrible smell lingering over the river in the Barrier Island. Jens Tripson and countless other locals who were born after the crime heard the scary tale from their parents. Chapman was convicted of manslaughter. As the Vero Beach Press-Journal put it, his trial was appropriately set on the day of Halloween. He served about eight years in prison, and then he came back and lived quietly on the river. And forever after, boaters, skiers, and just about everybody else knew him as Barbecue Charlie. Carter actually had a few encounters with him. He would still walk the town, pick up some groceries there once in a while. I picked him up on one or two occasions when he was walking back and took him back to the ridge. I think he kept a little boat that he traveled back and forth on the river to, to where he was. And uh, he was nice of a guy as he could be. But I can remember when my kids were coming along, we had this little houseboat. We'd always tell the story about Barbecue Charlie's and we'd always stop there about dark, you know, and make the big story about what was going on. And it, it was kind of a Frankenstein-type deal, you know? Trying <laughs> to scare your kids into being good. <laughs> well, he lived on one of the islands when he came back from prison? I lived on Fritz Island for a while, and I think he lived on the west shore of the river, north of where the current bridge goes across. And everybody in town knew who he was, didn't they? Pretty much so, yeah. I don't remember what ever happened to Charlie, whether he just got to the point where he couldn't survive out there or what, but uh, he's no longer around anyhow. Did he ever talk about the incident with you when you gave him rides? 
never brought the subject up. I didn't want to touch on a spot he didn't want to talk about. He was always nice and friendly and appreciative of rides, but I never brought the subject up. When Charles Chapman died in 1969, the Press Journal listed his age as 97 and identified him simply as a retired fisherman. He was buried in the Winter Beach Cemetery. Special thanks for research material for this show. Go to Pam Cooper. She heads the Florida History and Genealogy Department at the Indian River County Library. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. Let me stand next to your fire. Hey, let me stand next to your fire. This is Florida Frontiers. In the 1920s, archaeologist adventurers like Howard Carter and Roy Chapman Andrews were household names as each year brought news of fresh discoveries around the world. But just as many Egyptian artifacts landed in the British Museum, some of Florida's greatest treasures have left the state. Bill Dudley talks with two archaeologists about an innovative project to bring a few of them back. The year was 1923 northeast of the fast-growing city of St. Petersburg, on a large island named after Leslie Whedon, an early developer in the region, Smithsonian archaeologists Jesse Walter Fuchs and Matthew Sterling were excavating an ancient burial mound. They were uncovering a series of delicate pots with images of birds and snakes depicted in elaborate stylized forms. They were very special types of clay pots, very intricately designed The walls were very thin, a great care taken to make sure that the pots were symmetrical, very well formed, some of them in unusual shapes, large bowls, something that almost like a potter today might make as an art piece that you might see at an arts and crafts show. University of South Florida archaeologist Brent Weissman. When they weren't made to be used every day like we think about pots that we would use to cook soups in or serve food in. These were pots that had high symbolic value that were made to be buried as burial offerings. There clearly had to be a belief in the afterlife and these pots had something to do with the passage from the state of life to the afterlife. Analyzing their findings back in Washington, D.C., Fuchs and Sterling soon realized they were looking at a whole new culture. This was a prehistoric culture we had no record of, and whenever an archaeologist finds a new culture, they name it after the site. And so it's named the Whedon Island culture because it was first found and recorded here. Archaeologist Sheila Stewart is founding manager of the new Whedon Island Preserve Cultural and Natural History Center. More excavations were done in Florida into the 40s and 50s, finding a lot of the same elements on the pottery, these beautiful designs and punctations. As they began to find more evidence of the Wheaton Island culture, we now know that it stretched as far as Alabama and Georgia. The Wheaton Island culture was a shared system of religious beliefs that connected people of very different ways of life from the years A.D. 400 to about 900. For about a 500-year period, people that lived throughout this broad geographical area, despite their their differences in language and the differences in way of life, 
they shared some common system of belief about the cosmos, about life and death and the afterlife and the forces of the spiritual world. In the years since the last excavations at Whedon Island were done in the 1960s, attitudes and ideas in archaeology have changed. In the planning stages of the $3.8 million Whedon Island Preserve Cultural and Natural History Center, county officials, citizens' advisors, and archaeologist Wiseman were faced with the irony that very few of the original artifacts remained at the actual site where they were discovered long ago. Although they themselves are not directly descended from this ancient culture, representatives of Florida's Seminole tribe were involved as well. It's been almost 80 years that, that these objects have been not in Florida, where their rightful cultural origins are, but far away in Washington, D.C. Our interest was in how can we reconnect these pots back to Whedon Island, to their location, without having to physically relocate the pieces themselves from their safekeeping in the Smithsonian, where they've been at least taken care of and are secure. The group came up with the idea of a digital repatriation project to bring digital images of the pots back to Florida. Then it was decided to try and make the process an educational experience for a group of high school students from the Seminole tribe. A group of students might, in addition to learning the technology involved with photography and digitizing images and so forth, also have their eyes opened to these ancient cultures by themselves being able to handle these pieces that had not been handled by anyone other than a few museum curators and a few archaeologists over these years. They were students from the Asakshi School down in Big Cypress. And Billy Cypress, who's the director of the Atataki Museum there, accompanied them, as did their teachers, to work with the folks at the Smithsonian Cultural Resources Center. The result is a computer kiosk where visitors to the center can move and examine these virtual artifacts at will, while listening to recorded comments and reactions from the students themselves. You can actually turn the pots with your finger, and you can zoom in on the collection and be able to get details that I assure you you would not be able to see if they were sitting there in person in a glass case in front of you. To us today, the objects have the potential to tell a great story about what these people believed in. The way that they lived was similar to people up and down the Gulf Coast. But the importance is that these people that we call the Whedon Islanders lived in a way that no one today lives. They, and they had a system of beliefs that's not practiced by any living group of people or any group of people that anthropologists or historians have been able to record. So we see in them a part of the human experience that no longer exists. Archaeologist Brent Weissman. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. If you enjoy the program, please become a member of the Florida Historical Society by going to myfloridahistory.org and clicking on the Join Now button or call 321-690-1971, extension 205. That's 321-690-1971, extension 205. And please join us again right here next week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.